This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Robust and resilient game design. A fluke accident. Folk horror scenarios that don't go Wicker Man. And Claudio Naranjo. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait, didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more. Plangea is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs. Live on Kickstarter until October 7th. Search for Plangea. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice and the thump of miniatures tell us that we're once more in the gaming hut. There's Peter Frampton uh, not only coming alive on his uh, little gatefold that we use as a uh, GM screen here, but he's anxiously awaiting uh, the second segment of our uh, series on the axes of game design. And for those of you who missed last uh, week's episode, uh, how does that even work? It's a podcast. But what we're doing is, is talking about uh, different principles of game design, and we've established that these are uh, axes. They're on a slider. There's an opposition between one side and the other. We're working on a list that uh, Ken created, and once we go through Ken's list at the end of the series, I will either uh, determine whether I want to add any or uh, sort of figure out our relationship to all of these axes and, and how much they are important to us as game designers and or uh, how much they are important to game critics. But without further ado, Ken, let's get to the next one. And uh, here you've got your pair already set up. You've got robustness versus resilience. And uh, like any good bit of terminology, I can't even guess what these refer to, but I bet <laughs> you're going to tell me. Yeah, this is not a paired opposite. This was a attempt at a synonym, so perhaps we can create a dialectical third term. Uh-huh. But the plot thickens. The, the plot nomenclature clots. Clots, exactly. It, it clates, at least. The question of robustness and resilience is, uh, this is a thing that people say about games all the time. They say... GURPS is great, but it breaks at high levels. Or they say uh, Dungeons and Dragons is great, but it's pretty broken until the mage gets enough hit points to survive an encounter. The notion of a game that it, that breaks in the sense that it stops doing what it's meant to do and you run onto the reefs of the mechanics instead is, I think, general gamer parlance. And so a game that does not break easily is a game that is robust or resilient. And we can parse whether those are two different things. But my thesis is that you could have a game engine that literally never breaks, either because it is designed only for that sweet spot in which the mechanics still hold true, your dogs in the vineyard 
uh, style game, or you can have a game that breaks often and easily, and that might be in either a, uh, one could argue it could be in a so-called universal system that does not actually handle either quotidian human play or godlike superhuman play, but is only, you know, really sweet at sort of pulp and above. And that might be an argument that someone makes, for example, about Savage Worlds or to an extent GURPS, although GURPS, I think, works really well for quotidian human play, even at the absolute bottom of the scale. So uh, the question is, across what percentage of the likely gameplay does the game engine support that play in the way that players and designer basically intend it to do? And uh, that's basically the, the the question is, is you know, what makes a game engine robust? What makes it break? Uh, to what extent is it a player expectation thing? To what extent is it a mechanical thing that everyone can see that's like, oh yeah, don't do that. So you could argue, for example, that Gumshoe is quite resilient at uh, down to the level at which you're attempting to model, say, children or people who are uh, bad at things, and then you have to start breaking bits off Gumshoe the classic example is that I have zero in a general ability, but I still want to do it. And you have to start making up special cases if you want those people to be able to play at all, as opposed to just saying, you can't do it, stand in the corner while the real people play. And then it, as you can see with, uh, say, Mutant City Blues or the higher reaches of Ashen Stars, there is a point at which the one die roll becomes almost epiphenomenal to what's going on if you have enough points in the pool and then it becomes a different game and you're basically slugging it out amber style because it's just about you know how many points do you spend from your pool to make it happen so i have a number of thoughts and questions so first of all last week we looked at elegance versus ornateness and that was Mm -hmm. a slider where uh, ornate can be good and elegant can be good or in my mind variegated versus unified but here it seems like a game that breaks is not a great game. So this seems less like a a slider than like a a goal for every game is to have something that works within the sweet spot that it works at. So are we maybe in fact talking about sort of wide versus narrow that a, a wide game allows the characters to progress a long distance or at least occupy quite different power levels or relationships to the world, whereas a narrow game is designed only for a particular, as you say, sweet spot. And I guess the difference in a game that is not robust or resilient then is one that says that claims to be wide, but is actually narrow Right. in that it doesn't, you know, D and D is sort of breaky at one end, then it hits a sweet spot and then it gets breaky on the other end. But you can either look at that as a plus because you, uh, the old theory was, well, you have to suffer for many levels, mm-hmm. you have <laughs> to earn protecting your, 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 your fireball. You, you can't just you get can it. Enjoy the game. Yep. And then, you know, and then you're moving toward this point of power where you feel powerful, but the game sucks. And the justification for that is, uh, let's start over. Right. Is you have a, you have a castle. What are you doing? Going out adventuring, have your, your, you know, your swineherd go out and be the first level guy now. So are we, are we looking at, if we want to turn this into a slider where it's, uh, you know, one can be good and the other can be good too, but the one is harder, right? Mm-hmm. Having a wide game is harder than having a narrow game uh, because you have to account for many more cases and situations. And essentially, you could argue that, you know, if D&D 
always work the way it's supposed to work, you could say that it's three different games. The game of the hard scrabble adventurers at the beginning, mm-hmm. the game of the uh, comfortable adventurers at the end, and then the epic game. And uh, I think you can argue that there are versions of D&D that have solved that problem. I think 13th page is pretty good. But again, it narrows, right? It doesn't. Yeah, right. It's epic level sort of stops where classic D&Ds uh, begin. Yeah. So, so narrow versus wide, is that where we are? I, I think if we're looking at things solely in terms of axes, narrow versus wide is a as, is as good a, a term as any, unless we think of a better one. The sort of the, in the original tweet, if I may become an originalist for a moment and channel my internal <laughs> well, Scalia. Well, you can't be an originalist about your own airport tweets, what can you what be? What can I be? But I think that the uh, constraints of the format prevented me from differentiating between axes and principles on the theory that they're all important, people should be thinking about all of them, but robustness is a principle, and if your game is never robust, I would say uh, the difference between an axis and a principle is if it isn't one of them, it's bad, as opposed to it's a different game. So if your game is not robust or resilient, then you've done a bad job, and the width, as you put it, of the robustness is the actual slider that we're interested in. Okay. So now that we've turned it into a slider, as, uh-huh. as is our, our, as our it, won't, as is your desire, this long running series of two parts so far. Yes, right. How do we as uh, game designers approach the question of how narrow or wide a game do we want? I think over time, the assumption has moved from favoring width, where the assumption was uh, that you would play one game for a long, long time, possibly years. And so you would want a wide experience where mm-hmm. you would start out one way and end up another way and essentially have, you know, ideally three kind of different games with with the same characters. And today, the assumption is that it's hard to get somebody who plays more than one game to play your game for any uh, long period of time. And so I, I think games have narrowed over time. And that's obviously makes things easier for the game designer to uh, create only one experience uh, within the game rather than two or three different experiences that are, that go quite wide. And I guess another example of width, though, is the sorts of characters you can play and the sorts of activities that you can engage in. So in that sense, for example, the Yellow King is very narrow in that, for example, Paris, it says, you're art students. And that whole premise is based around that. Yeah, right. Whereas uh, sometimes you can go up to somebody's booth at a convention and say, what do characters do in this game? And they can say, you can do anything, <laughs> which and is, then you just put your head down on the table and weep. Yes. For them. It's like, Oh, that's a bit over wide, but then, you know, there's lots of other things where, you know, you can play any action movie character or you can play any fantasy character. And so mm-hmm. there's width uh, would apply, I guess, not only to character scaling, but also to core activity and yeah. uh, the identities, the per- different uh, range of personas that you, that player characters can adopt. And I think closest to my own experience, that's, you know, my experience when designing Knights Black Agents, which began as being very specifically designed to be Jason Bourne. And if you couldn't be Jason Bourne in my game, I felt that it had failed. But once I had a pretty good Jason Bourne game, I thought, can I widen it, not along the power scale, but along the experiential scale, as we talked about, um, into John le Carre. Can I do, can we, could you be Smiley? Could you be James Bond? Could you be any of the other great fictional spies who are not, you know, one or another iteration of Jason Bourne slash Ethan Hunt slash whoever? 
is there a way to move it outside the action thriller and into, you know, more older forms of spy literature or different forms of spy literature. And that was where I ripped off Alan Varney's notion of modes of play, because of course, Alan is realizing that paranoia is not particularly robust, but it makes a great sound when you smash it. It's the, it's the bubble wrap <laughs> of role-playing games. It's a game that's designed to fall apart, right. but some people insist on being able to keep yes. it running. And so for those people, he invented the mode of, if you insist on playing this game wrong, here's how to play it right, uh, wrong, and keep it going. And seeing, you know, being inspired by Alan's modes in Paranoia, I then thought, can I, you know, modify the experience as such that I think that if you play Dust Mode, Nice Black Agents, it's almost a different game. It's almost like a sub gumshoe game nested inside the other inside Nice Black Agents as a whole. The others don't necessarily change what we're talking about in terms of robustness and resilience, but Dust very definitely is me creating a way to play the game to make it uh, not a vampire spy thriller, which was the original mode, but a vampire spy mystery, right? And that was intentionally expanding the the, the remit with widening the game in the types of core activity, as opposed to widening it in the, you could play it as, you know, the newest, you know, fledgling uh, MI6 guy all the way up to, you know, super experienced, you know, Matt Helm. But rather than do that, uh, I just left the gumshoe defaults alone because they're great defaults for adventure. And I just tried to widen it out so that you're competent, but what you're competent at can be all kinds of different things. Right. And as you're setting out to design a game, you have to be aware that players and GMs will always try to widen whatever you do and then blame you for it if it breaks. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there are people who uh, took first edition Feng Shui and used it as sort of their kind of loopier, freeform version of GURPS. Uh, Wasn't intended to be that way. Second edition Feng Shui considerably narrows the scope by saying, you know what, there's, we're just going to give you a bunch of archetypes. These are the characters that you should be playing if you want it to feel like an action movie, plus a bunch more weirdos for the people who never want to, you know, color within the lines. Mm -hmm. But this game is actually going to work if I restrict more what you can do with it. And that means that if you are one of the small number of people who are using it for something completely differently, the second edition wasn't your bag because you took it and turned it into your own highly sort of kitbash sort of thing. And as a designer, my impulse is certainly, especially now uh, when people play games for a shorter period of time is to give them a narrower or even, I guess, a narrow is sort of a pejorative. So let's say specific or focused. <laughs> so perhaps it's width versus focus. Then it's a highly focused experience that where you feel uh, that this experience you've had is unique because the concept was more strongly delineated and also that it is different from other sorts of concepts and that people who like to widen things can then say, well, we're going to play hardened mercenaries from the Transvaal in Belle Epoque Paris, because of course that's what you would do. And well, <laughs> yes, you can do that probably, you know, with minimal effort because uh, Gumshoe is a simple system, but And I think probably also, though, as a designer, you are appealing to your own sensibilities. So if you want to think, well, you can do anything, uh, well, A, well, can you? But (laughs) it it is, I guess, a goal to say you could have any character 
from any form of adventure literature in this game and they can all interact with each other. And that would also be a goal, right? And that you could either create a, uh, a whole setting designed to be basically a kitchen sink of everything in genre to have a very wide uh, game, or you could just, uh, you know, create sort of a default experience and just assume that, you know, the person who always wants to play the winged cat is going to play the winged cat. So you might as well, you know, give them the rules options to, to be the best winged cat they can possibly be. Yeah. The, um, uh, the notion of sort of playing outside, you know, the, uh, trying to play wider than the game lets you, a lot of that impulse comes from love. And you saw that, I saw that anyway. For example, when Unknown Armies second edition came out and there was a very, very, very passionate, actually first edition, there was a very, very, very passionate group of Unknown Armies fans. And, uh, I was on the list server, whatever. This is an ancient term. Uh, don't, don't bother about it now, but literally every movie that came out for the next four years was how do you do this in Unknown Armies? And it would be like, how do you do Spider-Man in Unknown Armies? And the answer is don't, you can't stop trying, but. <laughs> That never stopped anyone. And, and so this, you know, uh, this desire comes from a place of love. I feel as opposed or can come from a place of love as opposed from a, uh, a place of, of, uh, of selfishness or fear. Although, you know, the notion of, you know, we're doing a game of, uh, heavily class informed Victorian vampire hunting. I want to play a cowboy actually predates, you know, gaming <laughs> in that Stoker did it in his yes, own novel. One so. character is. Is the character is the player who will never color within the lines? Yeah, and I guess the difference is just that. Uh, how much do people expect you, the designer, to do this uh, thing that's outside the parameters? Uh, but that's just, as you say, that that's enthusiasm. So, you know, for example, we've had people say, "How do you do Gumshoe Wonder One for more than one player?" Well, our idea is that you'd play Gumshoe, but, <laughs> but there are some cool things in it. So. Let's do a version of Gumshoe that has some of those ideas that feed back into multiplayer. And that's that's the Yellow King in Quickshock. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we've uh, turned a principle into a slider. And I don't know what more anyone can expect in a 15-minute segment than that. Absolutely. So, that seems more than enough. Frankly, we could just spend the next segment just, I don't know, randomly talking about some nonsense out of the newspapers. And this would still be justified, I would say. Oh, well, let's go and let's go get on a train and see if there's any newspapers lying around on the seats. All righty. From the dread docks of Dilathleen. To the poet-burning furnaces of Tsar. You are having the weirdest of dreams. A dream of an otherworldly deal on Dreamhounds of Paris. The Trail of Cthulhu campaign that mixes Lovecraft's realm of oniric fantasy. With the dangerous art of the Surrealist movement. Pitting Dali, Cocteau, and Magritte against the mythos just got cheaper. Dreamhounds of Paris by Ken. And Robin. And Steve Dempsey. Is 25% off at the Pelgrane store. In print with PDF or PDF only. Add its inspirational fiction companion, The Book of Ants, and get 25% off that too. Only until September 30th. With the voucher code hashtag AntDream at the Pelgrane Press online store. The chatter of the teletype, the whirring of the chirons, tells us once more this segment is ripped from the headlines. And specifically, beloved Patreon backer Alan Wilkins 
rips us a headline from a number of newspapers, among them the Washington Post, which on November 2nd, 2020 said, what a fluke, ah, 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 Dutch whale tail sculpture catches Metro train. And uh, there is uh, eventually, as you drill down, a, uh, a journalistic where, what, why, who, etc. So I guess, Robin, do you want to take that or do you want to wait in the wings? Right. So basically, this is a, a, a commuter train that, w- that uh, was out of service. So I just had the uh, driver on board. This is at the Diakers station in, oh, I should have called my Dutch friend to pronounce this for me. Uh, speaking is this. A place in the Netherlands outside Rotterdam. I could <laughs> yes. say Rotterdam. Right. So the train went out of control. The control barriers that are supposed to stop the train uh, didn't stop the train. But what did stop the train is a sculpture. The sculpture called Whale Tales by uh, Martin Struge. And it's a big 30-foot-tall reinforced polyester uh, sculpture of a couple of whale tails. Uh, the artist himself was startled that it was robust enough to borrow a term uh, to stop a train because it's like that's made of plastic and that's kind of old plastic too. Who knew? <laughs> Good for me, I guess. Yeah, so it, it it held, and even though there's no one on board, if it had not held, it would have crashed down into a, a cycling path and possibly killed a bunch of people. So you know, thumbs up to that whale. It was doing a good job, but I guess our uh, task here is to take a, a fun little story with a pun and then figure out what was really going on. And Ken, uh, since I've uh, set up the story, I guess you're the one who uh, gets to start explaining the uh, truth, possibly even the game scenario or game or scene in a game scenario uh, behind the story. Well, to begin with, this seems very classically like an omen, right? To me, you know, when Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane and everyone's like, that's never going to happen. And then, oh, look at that. These guys have all put the uh, boughs of the Burnham uh, pines onto their helmets and they're marching down the w- hill to Dunsinane. Don't I look stupid? Similarly, you could imagine some Dutch oracle, some Dutch soothsayer, saying, um, uh, or actually this being a global story that went global, uh, any soothsayer anywhere saying... Anyone with a sooth could have done this. Anyone who says soothly could have said, comma, soothly, that uh, one of the sign of, of the coming of Dagon, let us throw this into that, will be when a uh, whale's tail embraces a train. And you're like, well, that's never going to happen. Whales are underwater. Trains are above water. And then, sure enough... This, you know, blows out onto the news. You could, you know, you could even have it be an older uh, saying that it's um, uh, a Nostradamus style, you know, the carriages held in air by the whale's tail in the land of the Frisians, etc. And, you know, you dig it out. And, oh, sure enough, that was uh, good old Nostradamus predicting this ridiculous train accident. And that uh, sort of, you know, triggers the prophecy that this is the rise of Dagon. This is the moment that whatever undersea implacable force, whatever divine Leviathan force that you are expecting to show up in the campaign, they are now making themselves manifest. And because it is a, a reality breaking postmodern sort of uh, game, the reality is breaking in these sorts of wild viral ways first before you actually start having giant sea monsters come up and eat people. Right. Uh, and that's the the next question is, uh, what is the agenda of the, the sea monster that is uh, rising from the depths? Because it turns out that unlike some other animals in mythology where they're sort of universally loved or, or despised, depending on, you know, whether they're rats or eagles, 
the whale is uh, regarded differently in different cultures. So the Maori, uh, the whales descended from the god uh, Tangaroa, and they're uh, pretty benign supernatural entities. And I'm sure anyone who is actually in a simple boat uh, who uh, came anywhere near a whale, uh, that, that's pretty supernatural. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, otherworldly. Uh, but they were uh, they, they were good guys who would uh, tell migrating people which islands were the good ones to settle on. So they were very helpful. On the other hand, uh, the Chinese ocean god Yu Kang was a thousand foot long uh, uh, fish, which is to say whale, because we distinguish between fish and whales now. And it had uh, human hands and feet. I'm not sure what the purpose of that. I guess you can grab more plankton with the hands. What the feet can do for you, I'm not sure. Well, they can't They can't catch a Dutch train, I'll tell you that. No, they can't catch a Dutch train. And I'm not sure if he was a bad guy so much as uh, possibly occasionally wronged and uh, and had a temper. Because when you annoy uh, Yu Qiang, he turns into a bird uh, and rises above the ocean and then uh, wreaks havoc on his adversary. So it's challenging to wreak havoc if your adversaries are on land when you're a whale. That's, you know, intrinsic to whaleness. So mm. we're not sure whether he's, uh, I think he's not malign. I think he's misunderstood. Or possibly, if the past was anything like the present, uh, he has right to be mad at uh, people <laughs> sailing over him and dropping garbage on his home. Yeah. And then you also, of course, have, you know, your uh, whale as emblematization slash reflection of human evil. Uh, in many cultures, especially whale hunting cultures, the whales are all given individual personae. And when you start hunting them, you sing the song that says, Hey, grandfather whale, no offense. We're going to kill you and use all your blubber. And then the, the, the hunt is on. And at the end, you do a proper funeral so that the whale spirit doesn't come back mad and haunt you. There is the sort of notion of the whale as a, a not even a necessarily a satanic force, but as the, a definition of the opposition, and that is where you get not just the whale that God sends for Jonah to spend some time thinking over whether or not you want to talk smack about God, but also, you know, Moby Dick is sent, and is Moby Dick, does, is he a pre-existing Satan, or is he summoned up by Ahab's cruelty and monomania? And that's sort of the, one of the many meta questions in the novel, is to what extent is, I mean, Moby Dick we know is a real whale, in that he smashes the hell out of the Pequod, but is the sort of the malevolent power of that whale, does it exist outside the reality of Captain Ahab's mind? Or is it Captain Ahab that by pursuing the whale turns it into this satanic figure? And that's sort of uh, the question again, is, you know, is the whale that eats Jonah, he's doing God's job, but he's eating a prophet. That's kind of uncool. Ilmarinen also goes into a whale's body and comes out again, unclear whether the whale is good in that Ilmarinen had to come out the other end for the myth to be over. Is he like just the landscape of the myth or is the whale an obstacle to Ilmarinen to preventing him from uh, bringing those songs up onto the, onto the good people of Finland. Right. We don't know. Right. And, and there's a folk tale from uh, East Africa, apparently that in which uh, Suleiman, the uh, Islamicized uh, Solomon again, annoys God and a whale is used uh, as the mechanism for that. But this isn't a story of, uh, the uh, whale uh, swallowing uh, Suleiman, but rather an incident in which the uh, whale uh, comes up and, as whales do, uh, eats all of the corn. Yeah. Which, in this case, would be grain, not like maize, because uh, whales, uh, well, maybe this whale is also over on the other uh, hemisphere, having eating other people's corn. But, w- again, we suspect that the whale is more a divine enforcer 
rather than an active source of, of evil in the world. This is, of course, leaving out killer whales, a whole other category. Right. And this was not a statue of a killer whale. No. Uh, which is a whole different species. It's not yeah. even the same thing. Yeah. But, and the killer whale tails would not have been big enough to stop a train. So, obviously, the whales are, are in one sense, the tool of divine forces. And so the, the next question then is, did that uh, train driver have some sort of complicated slash argumentative relationship with uh, with the divine that then forced the god or gods to uh, test him? And then the last minute he relented by sticking the, the whale tail up there because, you know, whatever offense this uh, this train driver uh, had uh, committed theologically, it wasn't worth you know, killing a bunch of innocent cyclists for, so the whale uh, comes in and saves him in the first place. Now, of course, there are other less mystical options. One of the questions I had when I saw this was, is this time travel, right? Do you need this train driver to survive in order to preserve a, uh, a timeline? And Ken, this doesn't seem like your sort of time travel problem solving, because you're mostly drink uh, with people, but I suppose some there's other some other time travel that solves things by putting over clever bits of uh, public art in places. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, he went back 20 years ago and made sure that uh, public art was there. But my explanation really, uh, speaking of Feng Shui, is that what happened was there was a big fight between action movie characters, several of, of them uh, equipped with Wuxia powers and uh, possibly some sorcery on the train. And it was really the, the sorcerer in the party who stopped the train and it just happened to stop where the whale tail was uh, perhaps because, because one of the players uh, then uh, described that uh, as a cool thing that happened. Oh yeah, there's a whale tail there and that stops the train. Uh, so I think really this was a, uh, a, a feng shui fight scene that was then a, as it has to be hushed up possibly by the ascended. Right. Or, or it's a limiting paradox uh, in a mage game so that you're, you cast, you know, um, matter to save the train from falling. And then you had to sort of back cover it with, this was just a sculpture of a whale that everyone knew was always there. <laughs> everyone remembers this. Well, and that would explain why the, uh, why the plastic held. Yep. Uh, because it was actually just, you know, minutes old. Uh, and it just seemed 20 years old because everyone's memories went back 20 years. Right. Uh, well, whereas other uh, podcasts might f only find uh, one explanation for a weird news event, we're up to three. So Ken, I think we can uh, head on over and see what next hut awaits us on the Plain of Huts. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive-thru. Protect this whale of a podcast from the metro train of underfunding, alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Ariel Celeste. Jeffrey Pittman. Linda and Mike Schiffer. Peter Nix. And Philip Masters. The rattling of chains, the spooky noises in the wainscoting, the whisper of the wind through the eaves tell us, oh, it was just the wind. We're in the wind hut. No, we're in the horror hut. Oh. <laughs> and then the horror hut, we are uh, counting down to the Halloween season by thinking of cool stuff that inspires us. Perhaps, Robin, you're inspired by the brand new boxed set of folk horror movies from Severin Films that will be released Sadly, in December, too late for Halloween, but still coming out there. But you're definitely uh, thinking about folk horror. And I guess the question is, once you've run the Wicker Man in some form, what else do you do with folk horror? Is that the question? Is that what we're asking? That is the question, exactly. Because just like certain games or subgenres tend to lend themselves to certain stock endings, the most famous Call of Cthulhu stock ending is Stopping the Ritual Summoning, which, of course as we all know, never is a scene in Lovecraft. Right. But it seems to be the obvious uh, scene in Cthulhu games and the obvious ending of a folk horror story, as you can tell from most of the neo folk horror that is currently being released, not to spoil anything specific, but a lot of them just turn into Wicker Man at the end. Yep. Now, I've run a Wicker Man campaign for you, Ken, and other members of the uh, Pelgrain team back when the last time we had a game together, yes. back in the before times, and it was a Wicker Man Brexit scenario. And the trick there was let them know right away that it's Wicker Man. Mm -hmm. Don't withhold the Wicker Man part because it's not going to be fun if it's a surprise at the end. It's like, oh, you know. And it also won't be a surprise at the end. <laughs> it won't be a surprise at the end. It'll just be, oh, yeah, of course. So you want to do the reveal of the thing that other people would try to hide. It's always a great uh, storytelling trick. But what other ways can a, a folk horror uh, scenario end other than just at the, the big sacrificial right at the end? Uh, so I guess we need to step back a bit and look at what is, again, what is folk horror? We talked about it before. It is often a collision between the uh, modern outsiders and the uh, wily members of an insular community who are still practicing the old ways. This is adjacent to, but not exactly equal to, the uh, fear of country folk uh, subgenre, which is sort of more uh, about cosmopolitans uh, versus uh, uncivilized rural degenerates. And uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the uh, epitome of that uh, genre. So I think uh, another segment would be Texas Chainsaw as folk horror. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this segment is... Manfully wrestling it back onto the what, track. <laughs> what do you do? How do you take that... Uh, that collision of the uh, modernity entering into a world where uh, the the ancient uh, sacrificial rites uh, still hold. How do we do this without ending on a sacrificial rite? I mean, the uh, the sort of the cousin to the Wicker Man ending, you might call the Owl Service ending, after the amazing novel by Alan Garner, in which the outsiders are revealed to have been part of the mythology all along that happens in wicker man because of course howie is the uh the virgin sacrifice who is needed but 
in the owl service, it's like, oh, we're just slotting into the myth. And the myth is not necessarily a myth of sacrifice. It's a myth of, of love and hate and a myth of uh, abandonment and, and, and death in, in other ways. You're not being slaughtered by the good people of Wales. You just realize, oh, I now have to watch this girl that I love become, you know, killed because she's, you know, the flower goddess and I'm Lug Simildenach by accident. And, and this sort of, you were always part of the story is another very strong folk horror ending. You know, Penda's Fen, a lot of the classics of the genre uh, do that. And so if you've clevered up your intro enough and the players do what the mythic characters were going to do anyway, in the very broadest understanding of do, you can pull that on them. Um, another classic folk horror ending is there is a pre-modern ailment that has broken out and it must be stopped not with your rationality, but by embracing the irrationality. So that might be your sort of blood on Satan's claw ending in which the teens are all turning into Baphomet in some way. And what ends it is not, you know, the nascent world of Newtonian science that is being born just off stage, but good old fashioned Puritan fire and sword. And so you have to abandon your outsider ways and embrace the pre-modern in order to deal with a threat that the pre-moderns maybe understand and accept as part of their lives. But you as the moderns, you don't have to be a passive part of the ritual. You can attempt to detourn pre-modern to stop the ritual. And that's sort of the, uh, that that's not the wicker man. You know, you are the sacrifice. That's, you are, you turn out to be the culture hero, the, the, the people who, who, um, uh, who solve it from within, right? Right. And so that brings us to the, uh, sort of classic inversion, uh, where it turns out that, you know, the, the moderns are coming in and they're actually the villains. And so in this case, you are either other moderns not realizing that you're along on an expedition to uh, capture and, and harness the magic and, uh, use it for ill. Uh, in this case, it's not, you know, a, a human sacrifice, but, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, ritual where that is played out, but doesn't really happen. You could play with the idea in this case that there is going to be a sacrifice and make people assume that. And then they find out, oh, no, the other the, your rival anthropologists are actually planning to uh, uh, do the awful thing and uh, summon the powers into themselves. And then they become the threat uh, could also be that the uh, ritual, which, again, in this case is. Uh, turns out to be relatively benign, except possibly involving Morris dancing, that they are keeping something out. It's not that they're summoning the ancient forces, but in fact, uh, creating a wall that uh, uh, must not be breached. And so yep. and the, then you uh, breached it like an idiot. You breached it like an idiot. You messed up their, uh, their ceremony. Uh, you foolishly thought that they were actually going to uh, sacrifice that maiden when in fact they were, you know, just, just going to paint some ketchup on her. And, uh, oh, What's what's that coming out of the woods? Is it is it Arthur McAnee? Is it Lovecraftian? Is it good old fashioned uh, evil fay? And that can uh, sort of bring you uh, into that. You, there's also, I think, something that you can play with with the the wild hunt. You can get good old Hearn in there, and the threat is not that you will be sacrificed at, en- at the end by the villagers, but it, but that you will fail to correctly observe all of the ways of making sure that you are not swept away by Hearn. And then yep. it's a big controversy, uh, you know, you're swept up into that and that's, you have to get yourself unswept would be another. You don't obey the taboos because you don't know about yeah. them. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, I think the best recent version of that is the film, the ruins 
in which a bunch of uh, rich white kids show up in Mexico or Central America somewhere and there's a creepy pyramid and they're going to go climb it and the natives are all like, don't climb the creepy pyramid. That's bad and wrong and taboo. And we're all like, oh, are the natives going to kill them for climbing their creepy pyramid? And they go climb on the creepy pyramid anyway. And the natives say, well, too bad. Nice knowing you. <laughs> and then they just prevent them from getting off the creepy pyramid because they don't want them to bring creepy pyramid power back to their little village. And it's a really good sort of inverse Lovecraftian, but still Lovecraftian uh, film. And you could easily imagine doing it in a folk horror setting. I mean, I guess technically this is folk horror. It's just folk horror with an entirely made up mythology. But, you know, you could easily do it either with a more authentic Mesoamerican cult uh, pattern, or you could, you know, transpose it and say, don't cram climb on the creepy men here. Don't climb on the creepy haunted castle, whatever it is, and put it, you know, smack dab in the middle of, you know, Somerset or Lancashire or wherever you wanted to. And you could also do a murder story where the ritualists are being bumped off by someone mysterious who, again, doesn't want the ritual to go off because something bad will happen. Uh, and it could be anything from the aforementioned uh, people coming through the, the rift uh, from, uh, the, you know, keeping the ultra-terrestrials at bay to, you know, that good old-fashioned uh, development scam. He wants the, uh, the farmer's <laughs> land to fail and become infertile so he can uh, build a vacation resort on it. I, I, I love that. Let's see who you really are, high priest of uh, Ogun. Oh, yeah, you're just the real estate developer. This was not a surprise at all. <laughs> right. Or, or rather, the, the, it's the real estate developer who's, who's killing off the priest. So right. The yeah. ritual can't go forward. And, yeah. and therefore, the solution there is... Uh, you know, the exciting climax is, can you learn and perform the ritual in time to uh, do it and survive? Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, the, the experts are all dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not going to, you know, have all of the blood burn out of their body or, uh, you know, be struck dumb or anything like that. But uh, you've just recently been given the instruction manual and it's in a language you don't understand. And the, the drawings aren't exactly clear. And, uh, and you're what, not is this an right Ikea lineage. ritual? What's going on here? Oh, why didn't we bring the Allen wrench? Quick, roll preparedness. Right. Uh, well, I think the rule is once we make one of our periodic Allen wrench jokes, it's time for us to exit our uh, one hut and go to our, uh, perhaps in this case, our final hut or segment. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them 
deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing it's time once more to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs where we're going to pause on the landing to give a little wave to the uh, painting of the uh, mystic fire salamander. It gives us a little friendly wink, as always. And we head on into the Edwardian parlor, where uh, waits for us the consulting occultist. And this time around, he's going to uh, tell us about a, a relatively recent figure who uh, fuses psychology and mysticism. And uh, before you say it, Ken, there's a tradition of fusing psychology and mysticism, and uh, this is an outgrowth of it. This uh, gentleman is named Claudio Naranjo. Uh, he was a contemporary of Jacques Vallée in the late 60s, early 70s cult slash computer scene. He was on the cult side of it, or in this case, I guess, the mystic and spiritual and healing part of it. And so Claudio Naranjo uh, was uh, born in Chile in 1932, and that's where his story begins. And uh, when does he begin to intertwine the mystical and the psychological. Well, I'm not sure when he actually begins to uh, intertwine. I think that he, you know, as a kid has very broad artistic interests. He's into music and he pays an awful lot of attention more than you might as a medical student to various Chilean visionary artists and musicians. And so he's, I believe comes from the notion that art and mysticism are two sides of the same coin or two ends of the same stick or whatever you want to say. Uh, Naranjo, or Naranjo, I'm not sure if you pronounce the J in Chilean Spanish, then goes to America and learns an awful lot of stuff in the sort of nascent field of perceptual learning, which is the notion that uh, there's other ways to learn besides just reading it out of a book. Uh, Samuel Renshaw, the famous inventor of the tachistoscope where you flash information at super fast speed and people subconsciously draw it in. Is that mysticism? Is that pseudoscience? What is it? If you are doing a sort of a um, Heinleinian version of what eventually becomes total human potential, then maybe it's even science. I think it's probably not science. But anyway, he's going back and forth between Chile and America. He goes to Harvard. He goes to Berkeley. And uh, I think if you're asking, at what point does he fall in with mystics, the answer is Berkeley, because it is at Berkeley that he begins to hang out in the Asalen Institute, which is in Big Sur, California, just up the coast, and works with Fritz Perls, the German via South Africa founder of Gestalt Therapy. And again, I am maybe not the person to pick the poppy seed of truth out of the potting soil of imagination in uh, psychological approaches, but gestalt therapy seems uh, even weirder and more fraught than regular psychotherapy, but that is perhaps what draws Naranjo in, and he becomes not just an apprentice, but then claims after Pearl's death in 1970 to have been his successor, and he continues to uh, work with gestalt as sort of his model uh, throughout the rest of his career. Right. And, and Gestalt uh, sort of focuses on you in the present moment. So that implies that sort of mystical uh, sort of Buddhist perspective in a, in a sort of way. And also that it describes you as, you know, that you're part of a context of your web of relationships, your relationship map. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's known to us role players, uh, helps to define you and to some sense uh, confine you, especially if you don't understand those relationships. But it also, uh, Pearls also has roots uh, in Wilhelm Reich, who we've yeah. uh, discussed before, and again, brings us deeply into the uh, the otherworldly side of uh, psychology. And then the other thing that he's doing at Salem and at Berkeley is he's working with psychedelics. He's buddies with Carlos Castaneda, speaking of charlatans. He is pals up with uh, the uh, student of hallucinogens, Richard Schultes. And Schultes, who I believe at least is open to entheotheology, the notion that God comes from psychedelic experiences, uh, sends our boy Naranjo up the Amazon to study ayahuasca with uh, various uh, Indian tribes up there. And uh, Naranjo brings back samples of the ayahuasca that he used and describes it scientifically. He's also experimenting with ibogaine, which comes from a different plant, and harmaline, which is the active ingredient of ayahuasca, and with MDMA, which is the precursor drug that will become ecstasy once they uh, sort of formalize it into what is an attempt at therapy uh, in the early 70s, I want to say. But uh, he's down there where they're just synthesizing it and saying, what does this do? And uh, what it does is I'm sure it made everyone feel really great about each other. And that's why he's hanging out with all of these sorts of seminal figures in the human potential movement. Um, another guy that he hangs out with is a guy named Willis Harmon, who is at the Stanford Research Institute, which is no doubt where we start running into Jacques Vallee more. Yes. The SRI is, Rob, Robin, do you want to take the yeah, SRI? So which is a big ball in, of fun. Yeah. They're the locus of all of the, the connections be, between different things. So they're doing remote viewing. They're working with Vallee, who sort of has a, a thumb in the remote viewing, but is mostly involved with uh, creating the foundations of what will become the internet. <laughs> and then, you know, they're, they're staring at goats and they're also creating the technology that eventually will lead to uh, Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> yes. And, and that's where you get the, the real uh, revelation of, uh, they may have summoned something that, that no one can put down. Right. Uh, but at SRI, uh, Naranjo is doing something that is somewhat more quotidian, which is he's focusing on spiritual techniques and education. Yeah, and psycho and psychological techniques and education. The notion of can we teach people again? This goes back to his work with Frenshaw. Can we teach people in other ways or in more different ways than just the teacher lectures? You regurgitate. You read it in a book. You regurgitate. Now, this also, of course. People who are pointing to MK Ultra and its ties to SRI are not wrong. So you could argue this is also an attempt to psychologize mind control and uh, study the human mind in that way. So you've got all kind of uh, fun happening at SRI. It is very much the uh, the universal joint of uh, of this scene. And from yes. some is, of the is studies, it the potential to become more human or the potential to control humans. Yes. Difficult to say. And it is from this same, the same network, I guess, or this same, uh, mishmash, to use a probably better word of work, that the, uh, the literal staring at goats, the Bob Chanahan and his, uh, notion of the New Earth Warrior that the movie makes fun of, not unjustly, it comes out of this same bunch of work. So at some point, this is where, if you want to involve, uh, Naranjo in your Fall of Delta Green guys, stuff happening here. But in 1970, uh, his son dies in a tragic accident. And that sort of 
puts him on a reset. He leaves Berkeley, leaves uh, Salem, goes off to the desert in Chile, the Eureka Desert, and studies with a guru named Oscar Ichazo. And from Ichazo, he learns about the Enneagram, which is a concept invented by Gurdjieff, uh, our buddy George Gurdjieff, who I'm sure we've talked about before, and blamed by Gurdjieff on the Sufis. The Sufis quite rightly want nothing to do with it. But he and Ichazo, and they argue vituperatively afterward, work out how to use the notion of the Enneagram basically to map, as you say, your gestalt web of influences. And so if you have the nine basic, that's what Enneagram means, nine types of personality, what are the relationships that you want to focus on? What are the relations that are particularly toxic and dangerous to you? Basically, it's like astrology, but without the credibility. Right. So it lays out there's nine types of people, and then it has different uh, categories that, that correspond to your uh, personality type. So for example, if your characteristic role is either reformer slash perfectionist, your ego fixation is resentment. Your holy idea is perfection. Uh, your fear is uh, corruptness or imbalance or becoming bad. Your desire is uh, the opposite of that, to be good and have integrity and balance. And your temptation is uh, hypocrisy. Uh, and your vice is anger. And your virtue is serenity, the flip side of that. So, so you, you can, can see it as working for vampire clans, but yes, maybe uh, not. I looked at that chart and go, oh, look, here's quick and easy personality types for uh, uh, your, your PCs, including your drive and your fear. And it's like, oh, yeah, that you could just pick one of those and that could be uh, your character type in any sort of kind of uh, modern game. Uh, now, whether this is a matrix of ideas that is widely accepted uh, throughout psychology? And the answer is no. Uh, yet, it has uh, <laughs> really uh, gone to uh, the, the great heaven of Flapdoodle, which is uh, corporate consulting, uh, because corporate consulting always needs new Flapdoodle. And uh, so uh, you, the listener, may have been to a corporate event where you were encouraged to figure out what your Enneagram was in order for the bosses to convince you to work harder. Right. So this is a, a, a slightly more, I don't want to say nuanced, but more granular version of the old Myers-Briggs, but with nine types instead of four. So you have, and again, Myers-Briggs and the somewhat more clinical MMPI are all pre-World War II, or in some cases pre-World War I, uh, and they come out of the attempt to classify and sort all of humanity into little boxes, not unrelated perhaps to eugenics. And then this is sort of attempting to do the other thing, but backwards, but from the sort of, you, we know that there are these mystical categories. How can we fit people into them sort of way? Right. And, and in this one, there's less of a sense of here's the category you fall into. This is who you are. And more of a, here's the category you fall into. Here's the aspirational path you can walk. And here's the dark path you can avoid. Mm -hmm. So it's less about being trapped in your category than in transcending it. And so that's, uh, I think, somewhat more hopeful and, and less uh, reductive. I mean, we know the only real valid way of categorizing people is like power gamer, storyteller, method actor, but yeah, exactly. You know, that that's a newer technology. Exactly. That, yeah, they you can't really, whatever else you want to say about Naranjo, you can't blame him for not being up on modern day role-playing theory. Yeah. But Naranjo then leaves uh, Chile or leaves Arica anyway, and then he leaves Chile uh, to set up the Seekers After Truth Institute 
And that sort of spreads all over. And that is basically a mush up of the Enneagram and Gestalt, uh, to the extent that it does anything for anyone. It, it sort of exposes them to that. And then he writes a bunch of books about how bad patriarchy is and about the Enneagram because the Enneagram's the big seller. And in 2019, uh, he dies. His guru, Oscar Ichazo, dies. Now, really briefly, Ichazo spent his life denying that he ripped off the Enneagram from Gurdjieff. But at one point, he did claim to have studied at the Kingdom of the Bees, which is a very Gurdjieffian piece of symbology. Right. And, and, and that's in Afghanistan, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Probably so. uh, one of the offshoots of the Sarmung Brotherhood, who are the mystical bee uh, lords that uh, Gurdjieff, I think, put in Azerbaijan or in somewhere in the in the Caspian Sea region. But that's that's a hop, skip and a jump in magic Central Asia directions from Afghanistan. So that's uh, that's Naranjo. He is the boring kind of mystic, and he's the useless kind of psychology, and uh, they blend into the Enneagram, which is both boring and useless. Hurrah! Well, but, except, as we already explained, be a great way to generate character personalities right, yeah. in the game. Um, and also, I don't know how boring he is. You can get a whole bunch of interesting things going on there. You can have the characters go along to the Amazon on the ayahuasca journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have uh, members of Fall of Delta Green taking ayahuasca in the Amazon in 1967, that that ain't boring. Yeah, that's a, that's a thing. That could happen. You could have a, a quest to find the Kingdom of the Bees in Afghanistan or Azerbaijan or wherever that is, and that uh, quest could be interesting now or in the 60s. So that's uh, all sorts of uh, uh, fun there. And then, as you and said, then there is the SRI. Yeah, there's yeah. SRI, so that gets you your MK Ultra, and uh, that is very central to the whole uh, web of uh, combination of government conspiracy and uh, uh, mysticism and the occult and, and the internet. So he's a uh, not an antagonist figure. Uh, he's a uh, sort of a healing figure. He may be able to uh, help you refresh some points if you go and talk to him. You may be somewhat reassuring and have uh, good information, but uh, I think there's tons of potential here without, you know, fictionalizing and blackguarding him. He can be a, uh, a cool uh, sort of uh, very, uh, you know, elevated version of the sort of uh, uh, 60s uh, guru informant. And, uh, you know, who knows uh, what dark secrets uh, he was exposed to that he didn't put down in his very positive affirming books. Yeah. The notion of uh, Delta Green agents, having to infiltrate a Salen because a Salen was very, you know, it was all hippy dippy because it was the sixties and it was Berkeley people. So it was the hippiest and dippiest, but you'd have individual teachers would come onto the grounds and they would live there and teach their little class, whatever it was. And in theory, they all have to be part of the total human potential movement. But I have to imagine the degree of vetting that was done for a Salen people was minimal. There's lots and lots of stories about, for example, the sort of depressing things you might think about. You know, Fritz Perls was a miserable, petty tyrant of a person. Lots of stories about, you know, various Me Too offenses that were committed on the grounds of assailant by various gurus and alleged therapists. So in the background of that sort of quotidian human evil, you could absolutely imagine someone who says, I'm here to teach you about the nine geometries of Daloth. And then you're like, oh, goodness, nine geometries. That sounds good. And, of course, they're being broken down. Again, like Gestalt breaks you down and then rebuilds you. You're being broken down by the mytho- by some mythos energy and rebuilt into a cultist or 
a, a shell for Majestic 12 mind control or whatever. And our heroes have to get into a sailing, but they have to get in pretending to be seekers. And so they have to take lots of classes and figure out which of these classes is the one that's teaching the nine geometries of Daloth and then stop that guy without necessarily, you know, blowing up a sailing and killing a bunch of people who it turns out have some degree of uh, national security connections. Go figure. And uh, that national security connection and, and the element of the, you know, they're looking for remote viewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're probably looking for something else too in a, that was just happening in reality. So yeah, right. <laughs> once, yeah. you, once you add a genre stuff to it, they could be using the Enneagram to maybe one of the nine is the profile of the uh, perfect remote viewer or sorcerer. Maybe it's even the uh, reforming perfectionist who is mm-hmm. full of resentment and anger and who, uh, wishes to be good Uh, maybe that's the you know you're looking for that you know one in nine people who uh, has that potential or or if if it's the um uh, the secret 10th enneagram personality like the the hidden sphere of doth in the kabbalah which is the 11th not the 10th but still the notion that there's a hidden enneagram personality that is the mythos personality and that someone out there is trying to build someone into that that could be fun too and again naranjo's like oh no they're doing the enneagram wrong although he wouldn't know about the enneagram yet in the 60s he doesn't learn about it until he goes to bolivia and uh, learns it from michazo well i guess you just have to change your timeline a little bit Mm -hmm. or have the enneagram be showing up as a weird freaky uh dayloth symbol and then when it's here we are at the Enneagram. It's a simple tool for changing your brain. And then the players can freak out because yes. they know that it's actually a, a model of Daloth's energies or something. Yes. There, there's a diagram of the Enneagram that looks very distinctly like a uh, reconfigured pentagram or, mm-hmm. or a ninagram, of course. Yeah. Well, on that uh, note, I think uh, now that we've rescued uh, Ranger from the idea that uh, he might be boring in some way, <laughs> we can uh, declare ourselves having made this interesting and uh, exit this podcast for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Without Patreon support, this podcast loses its resilience. Join such illustrious backers as Alan McSager. Benjamin Rawls. Jamie Twine. Jake Kibansari. And John W.S. Marvin. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Festoon yourself with our latest design, Foxy Dragon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>